Welcome to Old Fashioned Finance, the podcast that mixes cocktails and high finance. I'm your host, Jason Demland, and I am joined as always and in the future by my good friend and fellow money muddler, Caleb Frankert. Jason, can a podcast about finance be entertaining? Not without alcohol. Well, all right, let's mix it up. Hey, man. We're in the dog days of summer. You know, uh, the high schoolers will be back at football practice. Uh, my high school football team had about 22 kids that went out every year, and we you didn't win a started. lot of games. Oh, I could have started on both sides of the ball. That's Dang. not saying much. Actually, it's funny because I showed up for some practices, I think my freshman year, and I remember the coach after a couple of weeks saying, hey, you you can't play. And I said, what, what do you mean? Like I, I was getting kind of offended. He goes, your parents wouldn't sign the permission slip. And I went home mad at my mom. I said, this is my mom. Why would she do this? Mm -hmm. And I went home and I I let loose and she goes, Hey, don't look at me, buddy. And, uh, so my dad walked in and he's like, look, man, you guys might win two games this year. I'm not going to have you going through life with some kind of leg injury. That's going to cripple you forever for two, two wins. And I thought, man, what a jerk. I'm glad yeah. I didn't play football. <laughs> I don't know, man. I know I I know my parents, especially my mother, who's probably listening, and she's awesome. Yes. Did not is. want me to get hurt. She, I think she was pretty sure I would, would definitely get broken in half playing football. <laughs> and there's a good chance of that. But I don't know. I, I I you and I both were in rock bands in high school together. Yep. We did that in the summer instead of play football, and we did two-a-day band practices. Oh, did we ever, after working together all day? <laughs> yeah, those summers were rough, man. Remodeling houses together during the day with our vast amounts of knowledge of remodeling. <laughs> yeah. at, we had a lot of on-the-job experience that summer. We, we, used, we? we used a lot of tubes of silicone. We used a lot of joint compound, and we slapped those houses back together. And then we would practice the rest of the day together. Uh, thankfully, we had uh, some pretty good band leadership because they were just you and I uh, just along for the ride. But yeah. I never did two-a-days at football. And no. I kind of I regret it. I think football, I love watching it. I think I would love playing it. I'm glad that I don't have lingering knee, back, yeah. neck, and other injuries. I have shoulder issues, though. For, from nothing. Can you imagine if you would have played football? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably that's probably the case. Yeah. Well, two days for a, a podcast, uh, I can think of a lot worse things. I love doing the podcast, so it's double the fun, man. Double mint. Double your pleasure. <laughs> double your fun. Double your podcast with old-fashioned finance. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that was good. Thanks. So are, are we doing this, man? <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we are going to do it. It's podcast day. It is. Double dose. Let's dive right in. <laughs> But first, we do have a little bit of housekeeping to do. We have a winner, Jason. Ooh, a winner of what? Yeah, at the beginning (laughs) of May, if you remember, uh, I don't think we talked about this on the podcast, but on our social media we did. We decided to do a fun little giveaway. So Yeah, okay. Yeah, you remember. I remember now. You didn't drink it, did you? Okay, okay. All right. So what we did, folks, uh, for every public share of our podcast on Facebook, we entered our listeners into a little drawing. So this went on for the whole month of May. And first of all, thank you to everyone who participated in this. Your shares, I think, were responsible for a lot of extra downloads. And it would appear long-term listeners to the show. Um, So we really appreciate it. 
all this extra activity around this humble little podcast of ours. We thank you for that. So thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thanks you, everyone. (laughs) Your participation makes this all possible. So if you're enjoying the podcast or you know someone will, smash that share button. Share it. Smash it. Hey, 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 just chill out, okay? Uh, Oh, all right. Smash so it. we've seen some increased activity on our not-so-secret speakeasy face group as well. Keep that going, folks. Invite your friends. We love adding new money muddlers every day. Yeah, back to the giveaway. We came across a bottle of some pretty scarce brown water a while back, and we thought, why not share this with the listeners of our show? Yeah. Uh, if you're familiar with bourbon culture, you already know that Buffalo Trace is not only a great bourbon, but it has become pretty difficult to find in some parts of the country, especially here in Ohio. Yeah. Why is that, Jason? Because I used to walk into a liquor store and get Buffalo Trace anytime I wanted. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, Caleb. Please do. It's ghosts. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to need a little bit more than that. Uh, Well, okay. It's probably not ghosts. That would be a lot more cool. I think there was a, there was a, there's legislative problems. Ohio is a state run liquor state. The liquor agency of Ohio runs that. I think they were moving around some stuff with Heaven's Hill Distillery and the Buffalo Trace Distillery. And Buffalo Trace was just like, we're going to pull out of Ohio. And then they did for a while. Really? Now, now they're kind of back. but Only kind of? Well, since that happened, Buffalo Trace is, is getting stocked in Ohio, just not very regularly. Mm-hmm. But when it is stocked, it flies off the shelves. And the reason for that is because some guy, blogger <laughs> out there, some guy on the internet basically wrote a blog saying that Weller, which is from the same distillery, was a poor man's Pappy. Pappy Pappy Van Winkle is like the holy grail of bourbon, right? Absolutely. I I mean, I've never had it, but that is, well, I mean, nobody has found the holy grail either. That's the point, isn't it? Um, (laughs) It is what everybody's after in bourbon culture. Pappy Van Winkle. Yeah, it's like you're paying hundreds of dollars for a glass. Uh, The bottles retail on the secondary market for thousands and thousands of dollars. Well, uh, a blogger wrote that Weller is a reasonable facsimile of Pappy Van Winkle. It's made Uh by the same distillers. He said it's poor man's Pappy. Well, that stuff started flying off the shelves and it trickled down. Buffalo Trace is made by the same (laughs) distillery as well. And it's the poor man's Weller. So now we got all these Pappy Juniors that people are buying and Buffalo Trace is We've always liked that as a bourbon. Yeah. It was always reasonably priced. It tastes real good. It's usually, when I could get it, about 25 bucks a bottle. Years ago, I told you, I really like this for uh, for like making an old-fashioned or a Manhattan. Yeah. It's a really good mixer. But, and, and you know, I bought certain bourbons that I would just sip on. I, I didn't always put that in that category. But now I, I would almost feel guilty mixing it because it's so sought after. It is more rare now than it has been. Yeah. Uh, and I think it, it's, a, it's a great bourbon. Uh, it's a really good starter bourbon. You and I were talking about it for a lot of folks have been listening to the show and I'm like, hey, I don't even I don't know anything about cocktails. Uh-huh. Where should I start with a bourbon? You guys seem to like bourbon a lot. And we were trying to think of a good entry level bourbon. Buffalo Trace would be great. Yeah. Something that's not going to break the bank, but it uh-huh. tastes good. It's not too harsh. You know, bourbon is necessarily harsher than some other whiskeys, but embrace the burn. But you can't find it anywhere, Caleb. You cannot find it. Yeah, that's a really good way to summarize it, Jason. That is a great starter. And I think it's because it mixes so well with everything else. It it just plays nice. If you don't like that harshness of just bourbon neat, you know, my favorite cocktail, 
boy, an old fashioned might hit the spot. And that's a great bourbon for an old fashioned. It just, it really plays well with others. We'll put it that way. But because of the scarcity of it, I mean, it is, the good news is, I mean, we don't see it like, you know, some guy selling it out of his trunk for a hundred dollars or something <laughs> like that. If you can find it, it's still about 25 to $30 that's in that mm-hmm. price range. So if you can find it, great. But we know some people who have kind of a weekly rotation. They know when all the, the liquor stores in the tri-state area are getting their shipments and they adjust their schedule around it so they can go get this Buffalo Trace. What's funny is I liked it enough to get it somewhat regularly, but if I would have known it would have been like this, I would have stocked up on it years ago. It is really solid. I think this is coming from my perspective. I think it's gained some popularity too with uh, some different companies that are incorporating Buffalo Trace into like cologne and soap and all that kind of (laughs) stuff, which is a great marketing gimmick. But uh, like the Duke Cannon stuff, they've got a Buffalo Trace line, supposedly their soaps and colognes and beard oils are made with a little bit of bourbon or a little bit of Buffalo Trace. So maybe that adds to the mystique. But the bottom line is it's a great bourbon. It's relatively cheap if you can get your hands on it. It plays well with others. So we thought that that was a really appropriate bottle of bourbon to kind of use for the giveaway. And the results were great. All the shares, the participation was awesome. I think we got some longtime listeners out of it. And without further ado, we're going to give it away here. The winner after all of that. Drum uh, roll, please. Brrr. No, no, let, let them add that in post. Oh, let them add it. Okay. A drum roll, please. <laughs> Tom Murphy. Tom Murphy. Hey. Tom. Congratulations if you are listening. And I'm pretty sure you are. Congratulations, sir. Tom set the record with most shares of uh, those posts. Uh, he was very dedicated, most both privately sharing it and publicly sharing it. Tom, we really appreciate your participation uh, with our show and with us. Absolutely. And Tom has had a, a question or two featured on the podcast over the last few months, too. So thank you, Tom. We appreciate it. You shared the heck out of our podcast, which... You know, you had more entries in there, so it makes sense that, uh, you know, statistically, you probably had the best chance. So math. Great. And what's (laughs) funny is some of the feedback we've gotten from Tom. He mentioned that he's here for the finance folks, but now (laughs) would kind of like to broaden his his experience with the cocktail world and was wondering what's a good place to start. Man, you know what? You couldn't start with a a better bourbon than Buffalo Trace. And while it's kind of scarce, I would tell you this. Don't hold it aside and put it on your mantle. Drink it. Enjoy it. No, you can drink that. Yes, sir. That's what this is about. Enjoy. (laughs) So congratulations and thank you, Tom. If you want to reach out to us on Facebook, we'll find a way to get you this bottle of brown water and you can enjoy the heck out of it. And hopefully you continue to enjoy the podcast. Thanks again. All right. So Jason, we have a pretty interesting pairing here. (laughs) <laughs> we haven't even talked about the cocktail that we're going to discuss today. Along no, with- we haven't. All we did was talk about how we were smashing a doubleheader today of two-a-days and yes. how Tom Murphy smashed our contest or giveaway, um, how uh, we <laughs> – it's just smashing all around. It's just smashing. It's just smashing. This is smashing. Um, We are going to talk today about the Whiskey Smash. Smash! Smash! Whiskey Smash! And if you have, uh, you know, before you clicked on the podcast today, if you read the title, Whiskey Smash and all that cash, we're going to be talking about cash. 
How much is too much cash? Are you Mm -hmm. holding on to too much? This is another question that comes up quite a bit. And I think that sometimes we just kind of poo-poo it because frankly, maybe it seems a little bit boring, but it, it is a really important conversation to have. I think that there's a lot of opinions out there surrounding how much cash is too much cash, how much cash you should have, you know, notions of cash is king, all that kind of stuff. We're going to get into that. We're going to put a little bit of, as I say, we're going to put a little math around it. <laughs> so, I've never heard you say that. I, I say it like every podcast. <laughs> put a little math around it? <laughs> yeah, we're going to put, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Put a little math behind it. I've never heard you say that either. All right, you're not listening. Am, am I just not paying attention? You know what? To you? <laughs> if we were doing a giveaway, you would be excluded. <laughs> <laughs> Caleb, I'm really excited to talk about the whiskey smash. I'm excited to talk about uh, how much cash is too much cash because I I I don't usually run into folks that have just the right amount. It's usually <laughs> a either not enough by a lot or way too much. So it's not uncommon for me to run into folks that are doing really well financially that have an overabundance of cash just mm-hmm. sitting there and with no real reason why then I might need it. And, uh, and then on the other end of the spectrum, it's folks that have zero and they're like, is zero cash enough? <laughs> In case of uh, catastrophe, <laughs> am I going to be all right with zero cash? <laughs> if someone sues me and I have zero cash, I'm cool, right? <laughs> I, there's zero cash for them to get. So, Yeah, this is going to be a fun one. There'll be plenty of opinions. Before that, let's talk about the Whiskey Smash, and we have some opinions around this one as well. I'm going to give a little bit of background uh, on the Whiskey Smash, because this is one that, it's not one that you normally think of when you think of classic cocktails, and we've spent most of our time talking about classic cocktails. So, the original Whiskey Smash, Jason, was created by... This is a familiar name, Jerry Thomas. The man. This is the godfather of bartending, everyone. Yeah, this is the dude. The dude. 1862. So a lot of our uh, cocktails of choice go back to Prohibition days. This is way before that. So this is kind of like a whiskey sour meets a mint julep. So we haven't talked about whiskey sours, but you can you can kind of come to the conclusion in your head that it's whiskey with some kind of sour, like lemon. There's sour mix and things out there that you can use to make a whiskey sour. I think a whiskey sour is a pretty popular drink. So imagine, if you will, if you're not drinking at home with us, we're going to share a recipe here in a minute. You know, if you want to imbibe with us, great. Otherwise, imagine a whiskey sour meets a mint julep. We've talked about a mint julep. You and I love Mm -hmm. the mint julep. Absolutely. It's a basic cocktail containing whiskey, lemon, mint, and simple syrup. It's a pretty easy cocktail when it comes down to it. So smashes are a thing that I didn't really know were a thing in general, but you can do whiskey smash, gin smash, rum smash, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and, and basically, the smash is, it refers to the process of muddling some kind of fruit into your glass. Smashing it up. Smashing it up. Muddling it up. Right? Yeah. The whiskey smash has been around for a long time. Not a lot of real controversy around this one. I would say, based on the drink that we we tried here, and I'm going to share a recipe in a second, whiskey sour drinkers, this is probably right up your alley. Uh, mint julep drinkers, and I don't know. I don't know. It, it, it's got some different elements in it. So that being said, the whiskey smash really, we talked about the ingredients. 
The one that we used was three lemon wedges, two ounces of bourbon, three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup, which we've talked about in the past is basically sugar and water. Uh, You can buy simple syrup or you can make it. And then four mint leaves and the garnish would be a mint sprig. So basically you muddle those lemon wedges in a shaker. You add the bourbon, the simple syrup, the mint leaves, ice, shake it up until it's chilled. And you strain that over uh, some ice in a rocks glass, garnish it with a mint sprig and go to town. Jason, (laughs) what was your impressions on the whiskey smash? Listen, Caleb. I'm listening. I'm all ears. Hear you me. (laughs) I like a whiskey sour. Whiskey sours are a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. I like mint juleps. They're great. Yeah. Um, I heard uh, David David Wondrich describe the whiskey smash as the mint julep on a small plan. I'm not sure what that means. Except that a small plan, like you know, P L A N plan, a small plan. I don't understand what he's saying there. Well, he is a lot smarter than me, so I'm going to assume that it means something real deep. Jason, but, he's smarter than you about cocktails, but you're a CFP. Give yourself some some credit here. Yeah, I'm pretty tall too. Well, so, that has nothing uh, to do with anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, on a small plan, it could just mean that it's it's usually in a rocks glass. The whiskey smash okay. or the the smash is usually in a rocks. That's glass. That's what I was looking for when I asked, "What does he mean?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I think that's what he means. To not that he's not uh, over six feet. Okay. Okay. (laughs) And a CFP. (laughs) Cool. We're having a great time. (laughs) It's, I'm so sorry, everyone. It's, it's in a rocks glass rather than a Collins glass or, uh, or, uh, what are those beer glasses called? Caleb? What am I thinking of? Highball? Highball. Thank you. Gosh. Yes. So I like the julep and I like the whiskey sour. When you mix mint and, Citrus to me, everyone here has brushed their teeth and then went down and had breakfast (laughs) and smashed a glass of orange juice. Yeah. And I gotta tell you, that is the taste I'm getting with a whiskey smash. I cannot enjoy mint and sour at the same time. The lemon in there mixed with the mint is just orange juice and toothpaste to me. And I don't know if I'm stealing stealing your uh, thunder here, but we tried it two ways. We did gin smash and we did a whiskey smash. Yeah, when in doubt, throw you know, replace it with gin. As much as we love whiskey, actually, that was on the recipe that we we used. It said, "Feel free to substitute with gin." So, okay, I didn't really care for the first one. Let's throw some gin in there and see. Now, yeah, not to steal my thunder, I took some liberties. You can't steal your own thunder. No, I, I, you're not stealing my thunder. Oh. But well, I'm, you're not I'm going to go ahead either. and say that I, I took some liberty I'm, on this one. I'm okay. Um, I'm going to I didn't this. follow the recipe exact. I am a I'm an amateur mixologist, but I kind of went with my gut, and I I made this one with a little more feel. So we substituted the whiskey with gin, okay? Because uh, to me, the citrus with the gin it makes more sense. You know, obviously we like you know an orange and an old fashioned. Um, but a lemon, that's a different animal altogether. So substituted the gin for the whiskey. I went with a little bit more simple syrup. One thing that I thought was interesting in the recipes we looked up for the whiskey smash was it, you were just tossing that mint leaf in, the mint leaf in, you weren't muddling it in. Now in a julep, you muddle that. So basically I muddled the leaves, expressed the oils, you know, 
feel free to smack the leaves before you throw them in there. <laughs> Going back to the mint julep episode. <laughs> so I basically, and I, I cut it back to one lime wedge because it was too citrusy for me. Yeah. I thought the result was a lot more palatable drink. It was a little sweeter. It kind of, uh, well, you said it, a little bit more of like a gin old-fashioned kind of flavor to it, but mm-hmm. with lemon. And mint. You're a lot more sensitive to the mint than I am. I, I notice the mint, but I find it to be delightful. So I've heard, uh, so you can ver- vary the herbs that you use, I've also heard. So maybe I would like a smash that is not with mint, maybe with, uh, uh, I don't know, lavender. <laughs> you know, uh, on the last episode, I talked about the uh, gin and tonic, or an earlier episode, uh-huh. whenever this airs. I, I talked about using a London dry gin, something pretty basic, juniper forward. Yeah. I think with the smash, if you did a gin smash, a more complicated gin might might be interesting in there. That's a good See point. See how that plays with the herbs that you throw in. You could change the citrus up too. I do like a lot uh, how you lessened the amount of lemon. Maybe use like an aviation gin or maybe a Hendrix. Or, I, ooh, Hendrix. Hendrix isn't really a citrusy no, one. No, it's not. Um, but that could be cool. I was thinking the botanist. I really like the that. The botanist, yeah. Um, with some of those. But yeah, something else. Some fancy gin if you want to get there. Well, I, I mean, I, I liked it. Uh, it's just, I can tell that it's a julep. It just tasted like a julep with a bunch of lemon in it to me. Yeah. That's well, it. the gin one was better, I think. And we just kind of, we, we were winging it with that. We basically took the things that we liked and, and ramped it up. So mm-hmm. the point is have fun with this hobby. If you're mixing up drinks at home, I wouldn't take any of these recipes real serious if you're not enjoying right. what's coming out. So I was okay with it. It was on the verge of a little too sweet for me. So maybe I'd cut back the simple syrup a little bit, but it was fun to play around with a little bit. I think smashes could be could be fun. Yeah. But uh, cash is fun, for sure. It's really fun to have cash. It's good to have cash. Let's, uh, let's get into it, Jason. How much cash is too much cash? In 10 words or less. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Shoot. Okay, good. Whew. You're putting me on the spot. I didn't have that pre-planned. <laughs> it's a good topic. Like I said at the, the top of the episode, we we help a lot of folks that are either sitting on way too much mm-hmm. or way too not much enough. <laughs> that would be little, I believe, is the word you're looking for. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. The opposite of too much. Thanks. Um, the <laughs> uh, So it, it's... There's a lot of variables to uh, to approach here. There's there's no hard and fast rule. There's a great rule of thumb, mm-hmm. which is three to six months of expenses for emergencies. Now, you said three to six months of expenses because I, I think that in this business, we hear a lot of things thrown around. And mm-hmm. I've heard three to six months uh, of expenses. I've also heard three to six months of income. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I guess, uh, and when I talk to clients, I, I hear a lot of both. Well, I heard I should have three to six months of income. I've heard three to six months of expenses. What would be, what would determine to you, I guess, which is the way to go there? What would, what would convince you that one is better than the other? My first reaction to that question is whichever one you like more. I don't care, man. (laughs) Cash is kind of a comfort thing when it boils down to it. You're going to be all right with either of them probably. But my argument for the expenses way of dealing with this is trying to be as precise as possible. And if an emergency comes up, so say you get really sick or a loved one gets really sick and you have to take a leave of absence from work or you lose your job because of the economy or because of whatever reason, uh, you you don't have your income anymore for a little while. 
Uh, so three to six months of expenses would be uh, your primary expenses that you've gotten. You're, you're not going to count saving into retirement accounts. You're not going to really necessarily even want to count spending that's that's extra. Any discretionary spending. Yeah, yeah. a lot of those. And, and some people want to have that to fall back on. And obviously, the more you have in an emergency fund, the better you are if an emergency happens, but the worse you are if an emergency doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So we have to kind of balance that somehow. The The CFP board has a bunch of calculations for it and a bunch of rules for it, but I just go with the simple rule of thumb of three to six months of expenses. If you want to do three to six months of income because you're living on 100% of your income, okay. that's fine. What do you think? Do you have a, do you have a yeah, passionate Well, when I was, when I was trying that? to bait you into this question... <laughs> What I was looking for was, hey, uh, if if your expenses are more than your income, A, there's a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right. But it's not unusual. If you're not budgeting, we run into that where we find out, yeah, expenses are more than our our income. So if that's the case, you better have three to six months of income. (laughs) I I also think, and you might have touched on this a little bit, depending on how many incomes you have in your household. I I would be much more comfortable leaning towards the three months end of the spectrum if there are two incomes, especially if they're stable incomes. So when I say stable incomes, you know, let's say you're a government employee and your spouse is a traveling salesman. One job might be pretty secure and the other not so much. Right. You might lean a little bit on on the, the six month side if employment's not super predictable. But again, we're talking about emergency savings. So, you know, going back to what you said about discretionary income and all those kinds of things, we're talking about what you're using in case of an actual emergency, like a job loss, mm-hmm. like the roof leaking. And we'll we'll get into some nuance here with the, the roof leaking and, and those kinds of expenses that come up for sure. Because, you know, I heard you in a conversation with a coworker earlier say, hey, look, a, a roof doesn't sneak up on you. <laughs> it's <laughs> deteriorating for 30 years before it's time to fix it. Mm-hmm. So there are different ways outside of an emergency fund, I would say, to plan for those types of expenses. But we are honing in on an emergency fund. Jason, where we see the disparity, going back to what you said earlier, is we usually see people not in that three to six months range, one or the other. We're looking at people who have either no savings or they're sitting on... of quote unquote emergency funds. And there's no way that they're going to spend that kind of money. Well, Caleb, if you have a lake property and you don't have any insurance on it, (laughs) how are you going to replace it if a hurricane attacks the lake? You should, you should, you should probably have insurance then. What if my uninsured yacht breaks down? I'm going to need that half a million dollars of cash. I see right I see now. where you're going or your house, you know, let's say you you live on the San Andreas. I don't believe in insurance. And you don't believe in homeowners insurance. So, the I chances need of that. your $500,000 home falling into the earth, it's up there. <laughs> right? Yeah, no, that that's a great point though. You know, you're you're a little bit glib about it, but that's okay. I think I'm hilarious about it. I hope our listeners know I was joking. I'm laughing. The point is you have insurance to defray those unexpected costs. So if you can think this is a good thought exercise to go through. And it I is. heard you you saying this earlier to someone is is think about what's the biggest check you could write this this year? What's what's yeah. the biggest check you could write? Yeah, excluding. So like you said before, excluding like IRA contributions and 
you know, maybe uh, a vacation or, or those kinds of things that you're planning on doing as, as fun or discretionary. What is the biggest emergency that you can imagine? And what's the biggest check that you would have to write on the spot for that? Let's say in the next year. I feel like that's a good barometer. That's a good place to start. You might have uh, clients who, I mean, we've seen this. I've, I've got clients who've got, you know, six figure income, but they live well below their means. And when I ask them that question, what's the biggest check you might write this year for an emergency? They say, well, $10,000, maybe, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Okay. So would it be crazy for them to have six months of expenses uh, in an emergency fund? It, it might be, especially if they have a secure job. You know, I, I think that is a good exercise. It's a good place to start. I think that when, when you're thinking about catastrophes that could happen, like you said before, roofs don't case, roofs don't just go yeah, without they, any warning. You just it sneak takes up. a long time. My whole roof needs replaced. Yeah, like, oh, it was fine yesterday, yeah. and now today I have to replace the whole roof. <laughs> this 25-year roof just ruined yeah. it in a year. Um, yeah. I think what a lot of people think about, especially – you know, we deal with a lot of folks who are retired or, or are getting close to retirement. And what are they thinking about? Really? It's health related a lot of times. And, and you know, their, their response is, well, I don't, medical's expensive. What if I get cancer or what if I have yeah. this catastrophic health emergency that could cost, uh, you know, a lot of money? Mm-hmm. That That's a valid, that's a valid concern. But again, you've probably got health insurance with max out of pockets and things like that. So really, I challenge people to really, really think hard about this. It's a great thought exercise. If you if you are going through what's the biggest check that you could write in this year, what big emergency could happen, not only does that help put perspective on how much you need to have in your emergency fund, it mm-hmm. also lets you know where you're really vulnerable to risk and where you might need to transfer that to an insurance company. And Bingo. With, with health, that's a big one. With long-term care, that could pop up. With disability, with uh, your roof getting blown off by a tornado, which is different than it de- deteriorating and needing replaced because yeah. it's 40 years old. Like if it gets blown off by a tornado, that's why you have homeowner's insurance. If you crash your car and you, you want to be able to have somebody else pay for the replacement of that car, you get collision insurance. So it's a great thought experiment, I think, to set up not only how much you need to have set aside for an unexpected, unplanned for emergency, but also for where you should be defraying that cost. Because at some point when you get pretty successful, you've got money saved and you're doing pretty well, you can be self-insured with some things. And if you want to have a little extra cash in the bank so that you don't have to pay insurance premiums anymore, that's, that's a fine decision to make. But if you don't want to have to pay $600,000 out of pocket because the, the neighbor's dog drowned in your pool and they sued you, you can get some liability insurance or an umbrella coverage policy or something like that and pay the premium. So that's a decision yeah. that you can make. I think it's a great a great thought experiment to run through, Caleb. Well, let's do that right now, Jason. What happens if your, ra- your, your roof caves in, your furnace and air conditioning go out, you, ah, let's see. I'll just move in you with you. You have a health emergency. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be glad to have you. <laughs> But it's, it's funny when you, you uh, speak in those terms to folks and you say, all right, all right. So what's a roof going for these days? Okay. All right. What's a furnace going for these days? What about that? What about your car? Okay. Uh, and I'm not saying to replace it with a brand new Cadillac either, right? Because if it's an emergency and you just lost your job, you're probably not doing that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good exercise because when you boil it all down, you go, all right. So I'm, I'm tallying it up. This would be a pretty bad year. You've mm-hmm. maxed your out of pocket on your health insurance. All these other things have gone wrong. And I, I'm looking at 
fifty grand. Mm-hmm. What are, what are we doing with five hundred thousand dollars sitting in savings, earning point nothing? You know, the, where's the disconnect? It's a good exercise, and I find a lot of times it's cash is a comfort. Um, but we talk about this all the time personally, maybe not as much on the podcast. Maybe we should talk about it more on the podcast. But um, you know, that money sitting there is uh, is getting beat up pretty bad by opportunity cost. Absolutely. And we look at other avenues. You know, your Roth IRAs, your health savings accounts, your your other uh, other methods of savings that are returning a heck of a lot better. All for what? For a just in case the end of the world? That's probably not going to happen. I am all for an emergency fund. Uh, I don't encourage using credit cards and lines of credit whenever things get tough. But I mean, sometimes we overdo it because we just feel good having that cash there. So yeah. it's our job to challenge people and, and mm-hmm. think about that number a little bit more uh, in depth. And I think that that's a good exercise for sure. I think those three to six numbers are kind of just a rule of thumb and they're helpful. But yeah, I mean, there's no wrong or right here. Um, but again, we're dealing most of the time with people on two ends of the spectrum, either no savings or way too much in savings. Not a lot of, uh, not a lot of people have just the right amount. Um, and so I I think another thing that comes up and this might be a good segue is, well, okay, the roof's not going to sneak up on you. New windows in the house aren't going to sneak up on you. These are things that slowly over time deteriorate and we know that we're going to have to replace them at some point. A car is only going to go for so long. Uh, those types of things. So how, Jason, do you plan for those types of expenses, knowing that they're going to come up? It's not necessarily in the next year or so, uh, but they're down the road in the next five to 10 years. How do we plan for those kind of expenses and not go overboard and miss out on opportunities that uh, you know the markets might provide and things like that? The, the quick rule of thumb that I use when I'm, when I'm talking to my clients and other folks is if you've got an expense that you know is going to come up in the next three years, you need a sinking fund for it and you should keep it in cash. Don't worry about making a good return on it. Mm-hmm. The, the whole, the crux of this issue about how much cash should you have really comes down to what are you going to do with it? And you got into it pretty good about there's opportunity costs there for other savings things. If this money is to keep you cared for, in some regards, you you have to try to grow it um, because uh, health insurance costs are rising. Uh, they're outpacing inflation by a significant amount. Long-term care uh, is inflating at a huge amount too. You need to grow your money to keep up with that. Keeping it in cash is actually uh, resulting in you doing a bad job taking care of that money. And and a lot of, of having your money uh, is, is about being a really good steward of it. And yeah. uh, so the money doesn't even have to be for you. If you've got a bunch of money sitting in cash and you're going to be philanthropic or charitably inclined, you you shouldn't have it there. Let the charities that you, you want to give it to eventually decide what to do with it. Or there's tax advantage ways to maximize the amount of money you can give to give to them. Or you could grow it for them. Yeah. But if you I always know, say if you're going to do someone a favor, do them a favor. Yeah. <laughs> and not, not maybe do stuff. I, I just, I know that, and this is, this is easy because we're not, I'm not looking in someone's eyes and telling them that the hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash that they have are, is actually a, them doing a really poor job with it. Cause you think that you're doing a good job. It's safe. It's not going to go down. Yeah. A lot of people are scared to death of investing that money. They think keeping it in cash is actually the wise thing to do because, yeah. well, at least it just stays still. And 
doesn't go backwards. I, I think a lot of times we equate. So first of all, I mean, before I say this, saving it, it, that's a good thing. <laughs> um, that's a good trait to be a saver for sure, to be a good steward. But I think sometimes we just equate savings with stewardship. And, you know, when we're talking about stewardship, you and I, we're, we're going to go a little bit deeper with that typically. Yeah. And, you know, there, there are some places where this is addressed um, biblically. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like now with interest rates at all time lows prolonged, for the last 15 years plus, well, not plus, but around that, um, it's akin to burying your money. Right. You're just, you're going to, you're going to keep it buried because at least I say that metaphorically, Jason, but there are people, there are clients that I have talked to and you got to be real careful with this, but I have met people who are burying money literally in coffee cans in their yard. Or in their house somewhere in the walls. Your homeowner's insurance probably will not cover the amount that you have buried. So check your policy uh, because you have homeowner's insurance, but it's not going to probably pay you for $150,000 in gold coins that melted under your... uh, I guess those probably wouldn't. But cash money, that burnt. Cash money, yeah. That's hard to... It's hard to substantiate that you got... Well, no, there are $250,000 lining the walls of the banana stand. (laughs) There's always money in the banana stand. I I think that you have to address what is this money for always. When you've got a big chunk of cash, it's fine if you've got it labeled. And it's fine for it to be in cash if you know it's going to be used in the next three years. Even in the next five years. If it's longer than that, you probably need to look into investing and growing that money more that is the good stewardship thing to do is to try to grow that money and conventional safe methods of doing that they're they're not the same as they were 30 years ago there's not a good interest rate on a cd right now there's not a good uh i'm not gonna say it there's not (laughs) 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 your annuity rates are not very good for locking it in for long term uh, it's, well, and that, that's the funny thing. Annuity rates might be substantially better than your savings checking CDs rates. But historically speaking, they are terrible. Yeah. And you're sacrificing control. I mean, you got to be real careful with something like that. Again, I'll go back to my stance on those kinds of things. I'm not defending or tearing anything down. If there's something that's available, there's probably a justifiable reason for it. But there are certain things that can be overused and and misapplied. And uh, yeah, it's tough because really... Just saying don't use annuities, everyone. You just didn't (laughs) say it. Well, look, again, there's a place for it. And you and I have been in this business for a long time. And I will not say that there haven't been instances where they haven't made sense. But again, um, probably the most overused tool uh, in the... uh, financial advisors tool belt. I, I want to do an episode on it, Caleb, but here's my uh, stance in five okay. seconds, uh, 20 seconds, 15 seconds starting. Just go. You're, you're five seconds into your 20 seconds. So make it quick. <laughs> <laughs> if you are locking up money with a surrender charge that penalizes you for taking the money out, if you take it out within five years, you probably would have been better off investing that money in the stock market because the returns over five years, historically, any randomized five years are usually positive and good. And you can take the money out whenever you want. That's why investing is better than annuities. Uh, 
don't don't disagree with anything you said there whatsoever. I dare you to. I I don't. I <laughs> totally agree with you. You know that I'm a market guy. I would say jokingly sometimes that I am a capitalist pig. <laughs> I don't. You're not a pig. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I like capitalism. Um, I like um, I like business. I'm I'm not sitting here saying I'm a big proponent of big business. What I'm saying is. I like the market. I like the opportunities, the returns. I'm, I'm a bit of a risk taker. With no risk comes no reward. Right. Where it gets tricky is when you've got someone sitting on $500,000 <laughs> in cash that will not budge and you go, gosh, I don't know. You know, a few years ago, you could get almost 3% on a CD and you say, well, for crying out loud, you'd be better off putting some of this into a CD for 3%. At least you have a little bit better chance of outpacing inflation, but that's because I already know you're not going to touch the markets. Yeah, absolutely. Give me five years. I want the markets. That's where you're going to make money. Historically, that's where the numbers uh, support, you know, those investments. We are numbers guys. Averages are averages for a reason. That is where it gets real tricky when you're dealing with someone who just wants the security. But ultimately what they're saying there is, I don't believe in the markets long term. Well, that's where we're going to have a big disagreement. So, Caleb, it doesn't even need to just be the market. So we're talking about this. You've got this money that you don't have a name for it, or the name is on it, but it's for a long time down the road. We're saying that Uh the markets is a good place for it. It doesn't have to be that. You could start a business with that money. You could could invest in real estate with that money. You could uh, lend it out to some local entrepreneur at a decent interest rate. There are other things to do. They do all involve risk, but what we're getting at is to be a good steward of that money. If it's for the long term, there's a lot better options than keeping it yeah. in cash. Getting out of bed involves risk, and we know this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's risk involved in everything that we do, and there is also risk in having too much money in a savings account, and that's called opportunity risk or opportunity cost. Yeah, that is for real. There is risk to money in a savings or a CD or a checking account. There's a lot of risk. Uh, it just doesn't feel as scary because uh, it's a warm and fuzzy place to be. I think, that, and, and I don't want to beat up on savers here. Uh, I, I respect it. I, Good I think job. That it's Ever, a great it, quality. Yes. Absolutely. Great yes. job. But, it, you know, if the markets are not your thing, that's cool. If you think that... Um, you know, that we're in a bubble and you have strong opinions, whatever I can get, I, I can support you, I guess there, I might disagree with you, but kind of referencing back to one of our previous episodes from a few weeks ago on multiple streams of income. Well, okay, let's, let's look at other uh, sources of, of income generation then. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe you're okay with being a landlord. I would say that real estate's done better over the last five to 10 years than savings. I would say that, uh, you know, investing money in a business uh, and something that you enjoy and you're good at has probably done better. Um, you know, so going back to that multiple streams of income episode, real estate, securities, even even CDs and different things like that. I don't find a lot of folks that are sitting on way too much cash, even that are sitting on a bunch of CDs mm-hmm. or a bunch of fixed annuities. It's it is what it is. It's cash. It's money sitting in a savings account earning point nothing. Uh, or it's money, no joke, in coffee cans or in a safe at home. Right. Hey, man, cash is king, except for when it's paying like a pauper, and that's what we're <laughs> that's what we're dealing with. Historically speaking, this is where I'm going to wrap it up on my end. Historically speaking, whenever the ten-year Treasury number dips below four, like it has been for a long time, you know, we we keep waiting for interest rates to come back up to where where fixed rates are attractive. 
it's usually a long haul, 25, 30 years. I think five years ago, people would have called me crazy to say that as interest rates started creeping up. But guess what? They hit rock bottom again. And here we are going back to 2008. We're dealing with all-time low interest rates. We're still there. What are we, 13 years in? Yeah. 13 years of earning nothing on your money. There's some opportunity costs there. I feel strongly about it. I think you got to have cash. It's uh, kind of a necessary evil. You got to have it there for emergencies. I believe in a sinking fund and planning for expenses. So you're not using credit cards and lines of credit and all that good stuff, but you can have too much cash. There is such a thing as too much cash. Yeah. I've, I've had times where I've had to talk to people about doing something with their money. We've got sinking funds all funded. So we've got a plan for replacing the roof in X amount of years. We've got a plan for replacing this car every five years. We got a plan for going on vacation every other year or every year for $10,000. But you got six months of expenses saved up and a ton of extra cash on top of that. We need to make a plan for that. And and if that plan is you're going to give it to your kids when you die, if you don't die for 30 years, you got some opportunity costs. And we can, we can look back in our careers at people that got out of the market in 2008, went to cash in IRAs and 401ks or just in their brokerage accounts and sat there and continued to sit there. Mm-hmm. The opportunity cost from there is 300, 400% of growth, tripling, quadrupling that amount of money. That's the difference that they have right yeah. right now from where they could have been. That's what we have to fight against. I have a little bit of a, a case study to kind of jam in quick, but I've, awesome. I've dealt with, you have two uh, dealing with clients. So this is like a generalization of the, the, the Smiths, let's say, or the, the Joneses or the, let's do like the Bonapartes, Napoleon. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, I know the Smiths uh, and the Joneses, Anna. so watch yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> so the Bonapartes have done a great job saving. They have saved money in a 401k and IRAs. They have lived well below their means. They have everything paid off. They are financially independent and they're done with the conventional jobs. And maybe they're living on a pension and some draws from their retirement accounts, uh, accounts and taxable accounts. But they also are sitting on hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash. And I ask them why. And they're just like, well, it just seems prudent. It seems smart to do that. And I start going through goals. And, and I use a lot of rules of thumb. So what's this money for? Is it for uh, your house? Is it for, I use a, a joke all the time. I, I said earlier, like, uh, this is your emergency fund. Like, yeah, I have, we have over $100,000 in our emergency fund. Mm-hmm. Like, are you afraid you're like, are you going to have to instantly <laughs> replace a gigantic boat? Or buy yeah. one, like on an impulse. That's an emergency. Describe. Yeah. I, I say it. I say it all the time. Describe to me a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar emergency. Yeah, I would love to hear what this sounds like. <laughs> so we go through all of those things, and we and if, you know, if the money is for kids, well, you probably should try to grow it because you're probably going to live longer than five more years. And if you knew that you were terminal or something, you know, uh, God forbid that that's horrible, then it's probably wise to keep it cash and let, let the kids do what they will with it. If you're if your kids are going to inherit an IRA, you should be letting that grow tax deferred as long as possible. If you're not going to leave this money to heirs and you're going to give it to charity, it's better to do it earlier than later. And if you are do want to do it later, because that way you have access to your money, you might give it to them upon death, and that might be 10, 20, or 30 years away from now. Well, it makes a lot of sense to have that invested to try to grow it over that long period of time, more than leaving it in cash. If you don't want to give it to a charity and you don't have any heirs to give your money to, you don't just want to grow it for yourself, you should spend it. And I have, I have talked to people about this who are doing all of those things. I'm like, rather than sit on $500,000 when you turn 60, 
What if you spent it? What if you did something you enjoyed? Yeah. What if you enjoyed some of what you worked really hard for? That's a novel concept, isn't it? And that's a better idea than just dying with a bunch of cash that goes to your next of kin that you maybe didn't even know. So it depends on what your scenario is. So those are just those are some rules of thumb that that I've gone through with with different people in that same exact situation. There are almost always better uses of your money than letting it sit in the bank above and beyond your emergency fund and sinking funds. Sinking funds, we didn't get into a whole lot, but that's really, I just define that as any expense that you know you're going to have in the next three years, keep that money cash, put a name on it. There and, you go. And yeah. it's named. And I'm not going to yell at you if we do a financial review and I see that uh, six months of your expenses is $60,000, but you've got 150 if you're like, that's to replace the roof, that's to replace mm-hmm. the furnace, that's to buy me a new truck. Fine. Like, good, good job. You did a really good job naming that money and planning. Yeah. It's it's all those extra dollars not working for you that have no name or no purpose, just in case. Just in case what? So it's our job to challenge folks with that. Jason, I think this was a really great conversation. Let's go ahead and distill it down a little bit for our listeners. If there are some bullet points and some calls to action that you might have, uh, what would they be? They are, if you are in debt, it's okay to have less than three to six months of expenses or income as your emergency fund. You should be hustling to get consumer debt paid off other than your house. Mm-hmm. If you Once you have that done, get three to six months of expenses saved. And that can be, it depends on your level of risk tolerance, really. Um, like Caleb said, the more income streams you have, the less you conceivably need in your emergency fund. And after that, unless you own 40 rental properties, well, <laughs> you might want to have a little bit more, but your income streams, <laughs> unless are you're worried, you unless, yes, but, but you, you might be worried about 40 roofs or uh, 40 toilets yeah. exploding. That's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of insurance deductibles that you might have to pay if there's an earthquake in the one time you have all your rentals in. I but, joke, but you know, Murphy's law, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I mean, I, I do that. And then, uh, above and beyond your emergency fund, have sinking funds for things, you know, you're going to have. If you are not going to spend that money within three to five years, you should be doing something else with it to grow it. Yeah. And I think some places to start. So this is funny because uh, I, I see some common traits between people who stockpile cash. One of them is if they love cash, they usually hate taxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. So, okay. So the first place I would start there is if you don't have debt and you've got your emergency fund set up and you're wondering where to go, well, at least get some of those funds into some tax advantaged accounts. And there are countless avenues to fill up before you just throw that back into the savings account, right? So Roth IRAs, 401ks, health savings accounts, all those types of things. HSAs, maybe you don't have little ones running around, but you got grandkids you want to help out. I don't know. In my opinion, better use than just letting it camp out in a savings account, earning nothing and also not giving you any tax advantage. So, mm-hmm. you know, as far as a call to action, I'd say from a tax standpoint, I'm take a look at some of those avenues that you could be sheltering in totally legal ways, some funds from from taxes, which you know we think are going up, you probably think are going up, and that might be part of why you're hoarding all that cash in the first place. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll add that to the mix. Yeah. Name your money. Name it. That's, <laughs> that's what you need to do. Give it a job. Give it a name. Do you have anything to add there, boss? That's it. That's it, man. Good talk. Yeah, that was a fun one. Who knew that cash would be so fun? (laughs) So I guess it's time for our next segment, which is... Questions. Straight up! 
Yeah, so this is a good one and a little bit timely here. Buff asks today, how does this child tax credit thing affect tax returns? So this is interesting oh <laughs> because uh, as of today, recording the episode, we're seeing letters starting to pop up in the mail about your child tax credit. What are your initial thoughts? And then I'll jump in. There have been so many new legislatory, legis, legislatory, <laughs> legislative. <laughs> yeah, that's probably it. There have been yeah. so much. There has been a lot of new legislation. Uh, we got the American Recovery Act stuff. We have rumors of Secure Act 2.0. We had the Secure Act. We had the yeah. CARES Act. This has changed a lot of uh, planning stuff, and it's changed a lot of taxes. So basically, just I'm going to give you the dumb version, and Kayla will probably give you the smart version of what this child tax credit <laughs> thing is. If you have kids, you get the child tax credit. You hope, probably already know about it. So it was $2,000 per kid, and it's gone way up since then. What is it, Caleb? 3600 bucks. $3,600. For under six, or is that the- For under six, 3000 for uh, between six and- uh, It's gone up to 17 Oh, my gosh. So, yeah. So basically, you're getting- Basically, you get a- if they're a minor over six, it's going to be 3000 uh, versus 3600 for minors under six. Yeah. You're getting a tax credit. You get that tax credit usually when you file your taxes. You take your deductions. You get your credits- um, and this was a refundable credit, so you could get it so, back. Can I nerd out for a second? Please do. Yeah, deductions are above the line, meaning it it knocks down your taxable income. So if you have X amount of income above the line and you get to take a deduction, that means whatever your effective tax rate, let's say it's 10%, let's say you've got $10,000 in deductions. Well, that's going to lower your, your taxes $10,000 less that's being taxed at 10%. Whereas a credit is just dollars back to you. And in a lot of cases, they are non-refundable, meaning if you have no tax liability, you don't owe anything, you don't get anything above and beyond that. The child tax credit is what we call refundable, meaning it can increase your return, actually. If you don't owe any taxes, you still get that. It's a credit back to you, fully refundable, which is what the child tax credit is. I would boil it down as simple as this. If you have kids in those age ranges that we talked about, those child tax credits are going to be applicable to you. What the treasury is doing right now is they're saying, starting in July, we're going to give you an advance on this. Okay. So I'd put it this way. If you're getting six months worth of your child tax credit this year, well, you could count on a little bit less of a credit whenever tax time rolls around. So let's put it this way. If you're used to getting a gigantic refund every year, great. Go ahead and take it. Your refund's going to be a little bit less probably. On the flip side, (laughs) if you're paying taxes in every year, you might want to opt out of this because what that means is your child tax credit is not offsetting your other taxable income. It's not offsetting your tax uh, liability. And you're going to owe more than what you typically would come tax time. So Again, I think that this is one of those things that it's it's designed to make you feel like the government's giving you something extra. They're giving you what you already had. They're just giving it to you up front. Now, from my perspective and time value of money and all that, yeah, give it to me now versus making me wait. That's prudent. However, you got to be careful and, and make sure that you don't end up with a, surpri- a surprise come tax time. Also, they're basing this off of uh, your last tax return on file, just like with all the stimulus stuff. So if you don't have kids that fall in those age ranges anymore and you aren't eligible for this, they might still send you money that you got to pay back. 
So yeah. careful. They're basically fronting you your child tax credit when you file taxes in 2022 for 2021. And my rule of thumb would be uh, a little different. It'd just be basically if you are going to make more than 150000 and you're married filing joint, don't take this money. You have to actively opt out. And if you're yeah. single and you're going to make more, what is it, 75000 Caleb? Mm-hmm. So if you make more than 75000 in 2021, opt out. Otherwise, take this money do good stuff with it earlier and then you'll settle up at tax time and you'll have less of a child tax credit than you would have had because you already got it earlier. Jason, I don't have it in front of me. Just a a nerd point here. If you are single 75,000, but if you're filing head of household, that's a different story. I believe it's 115,000. So who does that? Don't file that. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Some do. Sometimes it makes sense. <laughs> it can be advantageous sometimes. So good conversation to have with your tax person if they're not on vacation right now, which they might be. Uh, it's been a rough tax season, guys. <laughs> yep. All right. So that was fun. That was a really good question. Uh, hopefully it's applicable because I am getting a ton of people going, what? Uh, look at the, you know, I'm getting pictures of what came in the mail, snail mail from Uncle Sam going, what, what do I need to do with this? So good, timely question. Again, consult your tax person, consult your financial advisor. They should be able to help you out. Jason, this is the part of the show when we invite our listeners to speak easy about whatever's on their mind. It's a great place to share a recipe or a story or any thoughts, questions, or emotional outbursts that you may have. So Jason, did anything come into our speak easy this week? Matt says, I have really been enjoying this podcast. Check them out for some fun and finance. Well, that's what we're here for, folks. Fun and finance. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Matt. Those are kind words. Very kind. I don't know much about finance, but finance is fun too. (laughs) Awesome, man. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Matt. Good stuff. What do you think, Jason? Is it that time? I think, Caleb, you should blows out the blab, if you know what I mean. (laughs) I don't know about that, but thanks for having a drink with us, folks. It's time to close out the tab. (laughs) If you have a question or a topic that you want addressed on the Old Fashioned Finance Podcast, be sure to email us at speakeasy at oldfashionedfinance.com. We'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to share the show with someone you love or just someone who needs some money muddling themselves. You can stay up to date with the latest action by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Old Fashioned Finance is brought to you by Blue Jay Financial Group. That's bluejfg.com and produced by Pottery Studios. We've been your hosts, Jason and Caleb. Cheers. Cheers. Blue Jay Financial Group, LLC, Blue Jay, is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Ohio. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. The presence of this advertisement on this podcast shall not be directly or indirectly interpreted as a solicitation of investment advisory services to persons of another jurisdiction, unless otherwise permitted by statute. Follow-up or individualized responses to consumers in a particular state by Blue Jay in the rendering of personalized investment advice for compensation shall not be made without first complying with jurisdiction requirements or persuadent to an applicable state exemption. All verbal and written content on this presentation is for information purposes only. Opinions expressed herein are solely those of Blue Jay, unless otherwise specifically cited. Material presented is believed to be from reliable sources and no representations are made by our firm as to other parties' informational accuracy or completeness. 
All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation.